Peter, nice to see you again. You too, Trevor. Uh, yeah. After a year full of uh, intermittent podcasts, it's become <laughs> a little bit of a habit and a, a very pleasant one from my point of view anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. Nice way to end of the year. Yeah. And I've, I, I must say I've had uh, feedback from from friends who are not not particularly tax people. They, they all said, gee, that guy Peter Dax is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which podcast they're watching, but anyway. <laughs> we, we can draw the inference from that. You know? but anyway, um, okay, our topic today is the, is the Thistle case. Now, we did do it, um, I think it was the, the second podcast we ever did, uh, which was the tax court decision. Um, and uh, this is now the Supreme Court of Appeal decision. And uh, perhaps I should say at the outset that I, I know that the taxpayer has applied for leave to appeal to the constitutional court and uh, I've just heard that that SARS has also applied for leave to cross appeal on the question of penalties now there was a concession about when it came to penalties so I don't know how you cross appeal something when it's been conceded in court but anyway um, so perhaps this logical starting point is to is to just very briefly reminisce the facts and and deal with the judgment of um, Judge Wright in the in the Gauteng Tax Court. Um, the situation we had here was that there were a number of they're called Tier One trusts. I think there were about eight or ten altogether, and then there were a number of uh, those were all what can be termed vesting trusts. In other words, the beneficiaries had vested rights to both income and capital. Um, then Thistle was one of the discretionary trusts that was a beneficiary of that, of those um, uh, tier one trusts. And they were called, um, what was it? It's named in the judgment. Um, they were called the um, Zen Prop Group. And apparently they own a lot of land in Santon. You probably found that your firm's <laughs> offices are owned by, by these trusts, but they, they own a lot of real estate in, in that part of, of Santon. Um, that's what I was told. Anyway, so so the capital assets were sold by the Tier 1 trusts, and um, the Thistle Trust received its share of um, the net capital gain. Um, and it received it not by virtue of the trustees exercising their discretion. It they received it as a right because it had vested mm -hmm. rights to that. Um, the trustees of the Thistle Trust then immediately declared um, or awarded that amount to its be beneficiaries who were resident beneficiaries in South Africa. And, and it was common cause that the tax was paid by those resident beneficiaries. And SARS relying on paragraph 82 of the eighth schedule said, no, that says that the, the trust disposing of the asset must disregard any capital gain and the trust um, the, and the beneficiary must pay the cap, must take the capital gain into account. It was common cause that the way in which the beneficiary trust took it into account was by awarding it to its resident beneficiaries. That that we had a statement of agreed facts. 
and that that um, tax court decision, uh, it's the fastest judgment I've ever had. Mm. Literally, we got we got judgment two days after the hearing. It's an absolute yeah. world record for me, at any rate. <laughs> um, and and Judge Wright held that section twenty five capital B one, which refers to any amount. Um, and I think most of our viewers will be familiar with what Section 25B talks about. Um, it says where, where an amount's been received for the immediate or future benefit of a beneficiary, whether by virtue of the exercise of a discretion or not, it's deemed to accrue to that beneficiary. And to the extent that it, that's not the case, it's deemed to accrue to the trust. Um, and he held that those words were sufficient to capture a capital gain and therefore... Um, the in, the amounts were deemed to um, accrue to the resident beneficiaries in terms of paragraph eighty two, um, read with section twenty five b one, and and so the taxpayer was successful, and then the question of penalties fell away. Uh, I can remember the date of the hearing. Uh, of the Supreme Court of Appeal uh, judgment. And uh, let, let me say something positive before I say anything negative, which I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to avoid. Um, the, the hearing was on the 2nd of September and the judgment was delivered on the 7th of November. So September, October, November. So it's over two months, which is a long time for the SEA. You know, given, there are five judges there and they all have to read it. So Judgments tend to come out a lot sooner. And um, the positive thing I'd like to say is we we came away from that hearing that we, we got a very good hearing. You know, it was polite. Both parties had 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 a, had a chance to to express what they wanted to say and 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 to, and, and and the court listened and uh, and you know no, no problem about the hearing. That's not always the case in Bloomington. Sometimes uh, certain judges like to be finished by tea time. As it happens, that we were actually finished by tea time, but that's just because it was a very contained issue. Mm -hmm. um, and so we waited for the judgment, and we all expected Judge Van der Merwe uh, to give the judgment because he was doing all the talking. He was making the running on, in, at the hearing. And my opponent said to me that, the judge, you know, there are five judges involved, but the judge, if you look and see whose registrar is sitting as registrar of the court, that's a sure indication of who's going to write the judgment. So we were expecting a judgment from Judge Van der Merwe, and then along comes um, Judge Hughes, who's very recently been appointed a full permanent judge in, in the SCA. And uh, if I say this judgment is disappointing, that's putting it very mildly. Um, you know, I've, I've, I really can't say anything nice about it. But there, there, there are certain blatant errors, and you know, one, one, where something might go on appeal, one doesn't want to sort of preempt anything, and and usually one just keeps quiet. But there are there's some such obvious errors that that one cannot fail to point them out. Um, so she she narrated the facts. Um, and if you see what happened, I almost think that, let's just say one of the judges 
started writing the judgment and couldn't command a majority of the judges and and so then judge hughes took over i don't know i'm speculating now um but i'll, I'll tell you why i say that in, in just a moment um in paragraph uh, it's footnote number three in the judgment so it's really early on and i suspect that this was written by the other judge um the point is made and i'm, I'm reading footnote three now it says section 26a provides that quote there shall be included in the taxable income of a person for a year of assessment the taxable capital gain of that person for that year of assessment as determined in terms of the eighth schedule now we all know that that's the case so you determine taxable capital gain and it then comes into taxable income and the court has quoted that here um so <laughs> there's no doubt about that um However, let me quote from, from paragraph 19 and 20 of, of the judgment. Paragraph 19, the learned judge says the following. When examining subsections 25B1 and 25B2 to, to, to determine what any amount, those are the words used in section 25B1, constitutes, the sections must be read as a whole. Section 25B3 provides insight into the amount that the legislature was concerned with in the application of this section. That amount was the taxable income derived by way of any amount. Section 25B, read in its entirety, demonstrates that the amount is, a is of a taxable income nature and not of a capital gains nature. Any amount will thus not include capital gains. Now, that's, that's a direct contradiction of what's in, in footnote 3. Footnote 3 says taxable capital gains come into taxable income. But she's saying now 25B um, refers to, to items of a taxable income nature, not of a capital gains nature. That, 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 you know, I think everybody would agree that that is simply wrong. Then in Paris, just, just can I just come in there, Trevor, just to no, of course. A, a of chat about it. So I think that, you know, from because for me, the crisp issue is whether the concept of an amount in section 25B1 includes amounts that constitute a capital gain. I think to me that's kind of the narrow question. Yeah, and no, no, no. I think in your paragraph 20 or 21, and um, the judge, the judge said or the court said that the law. Um, specifically, or that provision specifically excludes amounts of a capital nature. But to me, what was striking is that at the time of the transactions, 25B had not been amended. So it talked about amounts, and it did not say amounts which do not constitute or which are not of a capital nature. It didn't have those words at the time. No, and no. there's a reference to that in the judgment. And I found that very surprising because I think they should have picked up on that and said at the time, there's no specific exclusion of amounts of a capital nature. However, this inclusion, which subsequently happened, either was retrospective or it was purely clarificatory in nature. But just not to deal with that, I found yeah. very surprising, especially when Section 25 B A, capital B, capital A, 
very similar provision, but deals with CISs. So it deals with collective investment schemes and securities effectively that are trusts. And it's always had the wording and amount excluding an amount of a capital nature. So you can put section 25B as it read at the time next to 25BA. And you can say that one yeah. excludes amounts of a capital nature, the other one doesn't at the yeah. time of the, the transaction. So I think you need to explain that away if you're writing a judgment is, is kind of my sense of reading it. Absolutely. And, and, uh, and if you look at the definition of gross income, it's the total amount in cash or otherwise, but then it goes on to exclude amounts of a capital nature. So, so clearly that includes capital. And if you look at paragraph 35 of the eighth schedule, um, it talks about receipts and accruals. And then subparagraph three excludes any amounts that have been taken into account in the calculation of gross income. So that removes income amounts. So that we, And that uses the phrase any amount. And one expects certain words in legislation to have the same meaning throughout. Um, and, and really, any amount, I mean, what's the plain meaning of those words? It means any amount. <laughs> but can, especially, can where it was, especially where it was amended, though, Trevor. That, to me, is, is exactly. a huge point. It was subsequently amended. And that, and that was dealt with in the tax court. And the tax court said it's not retrospective. Nobody argued it was retrospective. So the only way you can say amount excludes amounts of a capital nature at the time prior to the amendment is to say that the amendment was purely clarificatory. And that's quite a difficult argument because then why do you bother to change the law if it already says what you want it to say? Uh, so uh, to me, that's a, that's a massive issue with this judgment. Yeah. Let me just read how the judge put it. It's in paragraph 20. So the paragraphs 19 and 20 contain the, the, the real whoppers. Agreed. 20 says... It bears mentioning that Section 25B was introduced by the legislature in 1991. Logically, if capital gains did not exist, Section 25B could not have been intended to apply to capital gains. Further, the insertion of, insertion of other than an amount of a capital nature, which is not included in gross income, in the section after any amount, and she says here, which came about after capital gains was introduced, the, the the amendment was promulgated on the 20th of January 2021. We're dealing with the tax years 2014 to 2016. So it's just not, not applicable. Is yet another indicator that this section does not apply to an amount of a capital nature. Now, as you say, if you know, I remember Judge Bins Ward on several occasions when I've fallen foul of his judgments, he says, uh that an amendment was purely expositionary. In other words, it's just explaining what the law always was. Now, I don't see how that can be said here, but if, 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 if that was what she was trying to say, why doesn't she say so? As you said. Um, and and in, in the application for leave to appeal to the Constitutional Court, um, and I, uh, you know, I have some insight into it, but I'm, I'm not primarily responsible for it. Um, the reliance is placed on the fact that she's actually giving retrospective effect to that amendment, which in, in paragraph, paragraph 13 of the tax court, it's spelt out very clearly that it only came into force in 2021. And that offends the rule of law. Um, you know, we're entitled to be ruled by law, not, and if something's amended subsequently, uh, you don't apply it retrospectively. So that could, that's a constitutional point. Um, 
But also what, what that overlooks is that when Section 25B was introduced, um, it, 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 referred, it used the words any income. Didn't say any amount. Uh, it said any income. Uh, uh, what is not stated, I'm reading from our editorial note, what is not stated is that when Section 25E was enacted in 1991, and for many years thereafter, the reference in subsection 1 was to any income. This was changed to any amount in terms of Section 27 of Act 32 of 2004 which was after the introduction of, of capital gains tax. And uh, Meyerowitz in Meyerowitz on income tax says that the, that word um, could be wide enough to include capital gains. Um, so so to me, that, those are the two, um, you know, as, as I say, you know, one, one could, a judge might hold that that the, the 2021 amendment was merely clarifying what the position always was, but she doesn't deal with the fact that it, when it came in, it was it was specifically said income, then it was changed to amounts. Um, and you just want the judges to reason that out, you know, even if you don't ultimately agree with them, you feel like you mustn't feel like you read a judgment if you like there's something obvious missing, especially when it comes from the SCA. And was exactly. dealt with by the tax court in, in terms that specific point is dealt with by the tax court. So, and obviously it was argued as well. So just to leave that out for me was was a surprise. And and what what was said in paragraph nineteen um, about the um, uh, taxable income nature versus capital gains nature, when in fact the one is, is the same as the other. Uh, there are four other judges who have to read the judgment and concur with it. Surely they would have picked that up? I mean, it's quoted in the judgment. Section 26A makes it absolutely clear. I don't know. I'm at a complete loss, you know. Uh, it tends to suggest that the other judges don't bother to read the judgment. I can't believe that myself. I'm, I'm old-fashioned enough to think that that cannot be the case. But perhaps they just did that in a, in a perfunctory manner. Um, the difficulty uh, is that your only remedy is constitutional court. And as you say, that's not a natural place to go for something like this. So you know, it's not, not ideal. Yeah, no, it's not ideal. Now, the constitutional court does now have, it is the apex court now. Sure. So it's not restricted to constitutional matters. But, uh, you know, I don't know. When you look at cases that have, I mean, two cases on Section 24C, which have gone, mm -hmm. which, which surprised me. And others which I would have thought would go, which didn't. So you know, who knows? Um, not what what's been said so far is is really just scratching the surface, because there's there's a there's a great deal more that can be said. But 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 I just think one should uh, focus on what are clear errors in the judgment. But I don't I don't think it's possible to to deny that. Um, and and. I don't know. It's very, it's very disappointing. Not, I'm not speaking as a, as, you know, in a, in a partisan sense, but purely, purely, as a lawyer who has always had the utmost faith in in our in our judicial system. It's it's sad to see 
um, a judgment with, with, with written with such neglect is the only word I can use. You know? And and by the, by the the use as well. I think. Because the you know the part that you've dealt with is kind of the substantive issue that the court looked at and yeah. applied their minds to. But just before we come on to understatement penalties, I just want to wrap up wrap up here because I think the facts are quite unusual, if I can say that. So paragraph 80 in brackets one says that if you've got a South African trust and it vests an asset in a South African resident beneficiary, then the capital gain is disregarded in the trust and taxed in the hands of the beneficiary. And paragraph 80 in brackets two says, in the same circumstances, if the trust goes and sells the asset, realizes a capital gain and vests the capital gain in the South African resident beneficiaries, then again, the capital gain is disregarded in the hands of the trust and taxed in the hands of the resident beneficiaries. And 99% of the time, those resident beneficiaries are not trusts. So I think the facts here are, are unusual. And is this going to move the needle in terms of my practice? No. Advice I give to clients, not really. It's, it's very unusual facts. So I think that is, is, is at least helpful. At least it's not something where you say, my goodness, this is something we deal with all day, every day, and, and how are we going to fix it? But the understatement penalties, Trevor, if you can move on to because I thought that was very interesting. And I thought that was a big, and that is something we deal with every day. And I thought that was a very interesting judgment or part of yeah. the judgment. Before, before we get on to the understatement penalties, can I just mention two things? If, if <laughs> I hope I can remember. Um, one is section 25b one says that and we mentioned it earlier that to the extent that an amount any amount is received for the immediate or future benefit of any ascertained beneficiary with a vested right there too that's deemed to accrue to that beneficiary and then to the extent that that's not the case it's deemed to accrue to the trust now at the at the outset of the hearing um, with Judge Fundamadwa doing most of the talking, he he made it quite clear that that his prima facie view was that um, that capital gains get dealt with in terms of paragraph eighty of the eighth schedule, and income gets dealt with in terms of section twenty five b one. Now that that may seem a, a logical approach, but as I pointed out to him, and let's not personalize this, but 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 um, paragraph eighty, both subsection subparagraph one and subparagraph two only deal with resident beneficiaries. They don't deal with non-resident beneficiaries. And if you look at paragraph two of the eighth schedule, um, non-resident Generally speaking, non-residents are not subject to capital gains tax, but they are capital subject to capital gains tax in respect of immovable property and the assets of a permanent establishment. Um, so, so they are subject to, to capital gains tax. And so there's a lacuna there, in my opinion. Now, what what I what mystifies me about about this because it's it's been and I've I've been at a meeting at, at SARS with very responsible people and they they told me that opinion was divided within SARS itself and that SARS has on in many occasions about four or five occasions um, allowed the argument that in the case of a non-resident there was no CGT because the amount accrued to direct to the beneficiary. Um, why don't they amend the legislation to make it clear? 
And sh surely all that's required would be an, equi an equivalent in paragraph 80 to what there is in section 25b1, to the extent that it's not deemed to accrue to any beneficiary with an asset with a vested right, then it's deemed to accrue to the trust. We'll do the same thing uh, in paragraph 80. Then, then it's clear. Then we know that's the trust that must pay the tax, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't do that, but I think there is 25B changing, I think does impact a little bit on that analysis because now if in terms of paragraph 80, a trust sells an asset and makes a capital gain and distributes a capital gain to a non-resident beneficiary, then uh, paragraph 82 does not apply because it only applies to distributions to resident beneficiaries. So paragraph 82 doesn't apply and the, and the capital gain is not allocated to the beneficiary. So then you'd say, why isn't the tax in the hands of the trust? And I think you'd have to go to section 25B and say, paragraph 80 doesn't help us, it doesn't deal with us. So, but in terms of the section 25B, the capital gain is an amount that just flows through the trust and goes to the non-resident beneficiary, who, as you said, Trevor, is not taxed on it. The problem now is section 25B has been amended and it no. says excluding amounts of a capital nature. So I think 25B has been, the, the door has been locked on that provision. And I saw that provision is quite important in arguing the flow through to a non-resident beneficiary. So I think SARS might say, you know what, we think we have we have in some way fixed this this issue. Well, I think if if that's if that's fixing it, I don't I'm not impressed because <laughs> um, you know it's 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 like a, a half fix. Um, I agree. Yeah, it is. It's a, you know, it's reading something with something else and something else and kind of saying, okay, well, maybe that's what's meant here. <laughs> but Trevor, that's good well, that, for us I mean, because what, we're what advisors. We do, do we want simple law <laughs> as advisors? <laughs> well, it's nice to be able to advise people with confidence. But not, not only applies to income and amounts that do not, capital amounts that don't mm. constitute gross income. So it has but to Trevor, be. Talk to us about. Talk to us about understatement penalties. I'm interested. No, in that no, I'm, I'm coming. I'm coming there. <laughs> and then, and then the, the other thing is, um, we we offered about a, a main argument and then at least three alternative arguments. But our main argument was that section eight, paragraph eighty-two, applied to the distribution from the tier one trust to the thistle trust, and that paragraph eighty-one applied to the distribution from uh, the, the Thistle Trust to its beneficiaries. Um, and as you said earlier, I mean, it's, it's, this is an unusual set of facts. Um, but why should it, as far as the distribution from the Thistle Trust to its beneficiaries are concerned, why should it make any difference where that amount was derived from? I can't see why. And the question is, is it an asset? Um, and maybe that's getting a bit too technical now. And you know, there, there are a number of other provisions relating to to all of that. But to my mind, the the official size line is is far too literalistic. You know, the see paragraph eighty two says that the trust that disposes of an asset and, and and awards the proceeds to its beneficiary, the trust must ignore what's happened, and and the beneficiary must pay the tax. But where the beneficiary itself is a, is a trust, then surely um, that distrib on distribution must also be taken into account with similar principles. 
Um, and I don't see why it should matter how, how, how the Thistle Trust got, got its asset that it distributed. Anyway, that's enough of that. As far as the penalty were concerned, what, what actually happened in court, and, and um, the, the, the facts of the matter were that the taxpayer had relied on an opinion given by Meyerowitz many years ago. The opinion wasn't given to the Thistle Trust; was given to another trust in the in that same group, but it you know it, it was on all, all fours. So the taxpayer relied on that, and the SARS argument was that the taxpayer had acted deliberately, um, and therefore it was not inadvertent. And for the taxpayer, we submitted that that. Uh, Take a situation of a judge where where uh, where a court where an appeal court finds that a lower court has erred, has got something wrong, has made a mistake. Um, would anyone ever suggest that the, that what the learned judge in the court arco got wrong was anything other than a bona fide inadvertent error? I I don't see how you can suggest that that. One's entitled to assume that judges act deliberately. In other words, they research a problem, they come to a conclusion, and they express their view. The SARS view seems to be that it's only if you put in an extra note or if you leave a note out or something just through carelessness. That's what an inadvertent error is. And and what Judge van der Merwe said um, in court, he said he said the appellant's arguments on on the uh, understatement penalty are obviously correct, are they not? And the SARS representative said, yes, my lord, they are. Conceded. I think that's very, very powerful because, as you say, in terms of Section 222 of the Tax Administration Act, you can't have a an understatement penalty if the understatement results from a bona fide inadvertent error. So what is no. that bona fide inadvertent error? And no. SARS has got a guide on understatement penalties. And they basically, as you said, Trevor, they say a bona fide inadvertent error doesn't result from deliberate tax planning. So it arises from an unthinking mistake, like a capturing error or something like that. And that's no. massive because every time you look at whether or not there's an understatement and, which, and, and understatement penalties, you look at bona fide inadvertent errors and you say, well, if that only applies to an unthinking mistake, that's a very narrow reading. And there are a couple yeah. of uh, tax court cases, ABC Holdings is the one dealing with that, that issue. Uh, and they've said, I think rightly, that a bona fide inadvertent error is an innocent mistake resulting in an understatement uh, yeah. when the taxpayer is acting in good faith. And that makes complete sense to me. But they tax court cases, so they're not binding. So then you've got SARS's position in its guide, which goes contrary to the tax court cases. And they've got the SCA st uh, standing up and saying, I think it's paragraph 29, that the understatement by the Thistle Trust was a bona fide inadvertent error as it had believed that section 25B was applicable to its case. Though the Thistle Trust erred, it did stand good faith and acted unintentionally. And I think that's very powerful. And that's very, as I say, that moves the needle in terms of the stuff that we advise on all day, every day. No, I think maybe what I should do in the taxpayer is actually quote from from the taxpayer's heads of argument on the, on that specific point, and then say SARS so conceded it on that basis under pressure from the so. judge. Yes, but still, um, 
I think it'd be great because they just oh. say that point was conceded, but you kind of left hanging and saying, well, how was it conceded? How did that happen? What what, yeah. what is the background to that? So I think it'd be great to kind of get some color and context on that because this is really a big point for us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, to, it. me, to me, it's perfectly obvious. And the, and the example of a judge just brings it home yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> probably all judges who reached the, the SCA have been overturned themselves when they were in a lower court, that happens. You know, that's life. Mm -hmm. no, no, we, we're all human. We make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, like, I think Judge Wright was correct and, and, and the SCA was wrong in this matter, but uh, that's just my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you can't say that it, that, that it was anything other than a bona fide inadvertent error. Yeah. And it's actually quite interesting because the, the definition of understatement includes an incorrect statement in a return. And Trevor, we've chatted about this briefly. If I believe my tax position is correct and I fill out my tax return on that basis, I don't think that's an incorrect statement in the return just because SARS disagrees with it. So they they disagree and they, you know, give an, uh, an additional assessment. And, and I say, but hang on, that's not, a, that's not a, an incorrect statement. That's just my view of the world after I've taken advice. And you've got a different view of the, word, the world. But I think an incorrect statement means something that's objectively wrong. You just yeah. you said you you said you didn't get gross income and you did. You said you didn't make a capital gain and you did. That's just an incorrect statement. So I think with something like this, I would just question whether in fact you get into the definition of understatement. Is there an incorrect statement in a return? And it's only if you have an understatement that you have to look at, okay, well, you don't have understatement penalties if it results from a bona fide inadvertent error. So I think you've got almost two shots at that as a taxpayer. Yeah. And I mean, you know, those understatement penalties are pernicious because there's no discretion. Yeah, it's just it's just laid down by the, uh, I think it's iniquitous myself. But, anyway. mm -hmm. but I think that's a very positive piece of this judgment. And I'm, you're, I'm very interested in your point that cells are cross-appealing. Like on what basis are they cross-appealing on that, <laughs> on something that's so clearly right and has been upheld by tax courts and it's just logical and obvious because oh. the guide says something else. I mean, that's, wow. Well, I hope that part doesn't get over, overturned. That's for sure. If it does, if it does end up in the constitutional court, but that that I'd be prepared to wager. Hey, Trevor. No, no. <laughs> I can't. I can't see that happening. I'm not a betting man, but I tell you, that's almost as unlikely as Harry Kane missing a second penalty by kicking the ball over the crossbar. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's low. Perhaps so, that's a suitably frivolous note on which to end. Very good chatting, Trevor. And yeah, I look forward to hearing the, the next round in this because I think there's at least well, there's certainly one round to go, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Um, we'll see. Um, mm. but, you know, I, I would I would think I, I, I know uh, the constitutional court, it's, it's got to be in the interests of justice. And they define that in their own particular ways. And so it's, it's got to be important. But when you've got such glaring errors from the Supreme Court of Appeal, I don't know how you can leave something like that. It just, 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 you know, just messes up our jurisprudence. I would think that's in the interests of justice to fix it. Yeah. They, might, they might still come to the same conclusion for different reasons. We're not, you know, I'm not, Wedded to the, the the conclusion, but it's the reasoning that's the problem. Thank you for chatting, Trevor, as always, and we will have oh, a good no, end no. of the year. Oh.
from the from the sixteenth of December to the fifteenth of January, we can uh, not worry about the the DAs. <laughs> so many business days to get things done. <laughs> exactly, and take a proper break and think of something other than tax. So. Exactly. Yeah. So thanks, Trevor. Peter, thanks very much. Nice to Appreciate chat. It. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.